Despite two years of shamefully bad governance by the Democrats, Joe Biden outperforms Barack Obama and Bill Clinton in the midterms, and an expected national course correction evaporates. What happened? Why did the Republicans lose so badly? And what happens now? We break it down with a midterms postmortem next on the Midnight Ride. Let's go. It's Monday, November 14th, 2022. They're still counting ballots in Maricopa County, Arizona. And you are listening to the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon, your home for misinformation and disinformation, also known as the truth. Quick reminder to all the Midnight Riders, please continue to share this podcast with your friends. And if you haven't already done so, give us a five-star rating and a review on wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Paul Runyon. It was a very, very tough week for yours truly. How was, how'd yours go? How do you think it went? What kind of question is that? <laughs> I mean, it, terrible would be doing it a, a, would be making it seem too, too good of a week. Obviously, election aside, you guys know I live in Florida. I had a, we had a hurricane come through. I've been dealing with the Broward County Teachers Union all week. Not only do they take a teacher planning day on election day so that the union can all go vote, but they also close schools during the hurricane when uh, even though we had literally almost no impact at all. So, of course, you know, they continue to do whatever they want with impunity. But the one positive in Florida was that the teachers union did get smacked down a little bit and that we had... Uh, great GOP victories in the state. But other than that, not a great week. You know, I've heard that uh, some of the teachers unions around the teachers, school board races around the country actually went very well for families and for parental rights. So that could be a silver lining. In a second, uh, I will discuss why I think this isn't as bad as you and I both initially probably thought on Tuesday night and throughout the week. But let's let's just real quick give you an update on where we stand on the midterms 2022, and then I'll turn it over to Paul for the beginning of the postmortem. The Democrats and Chuck Schumer have retained control of the Senate. They currently have 50 seats to the Republicans, 49, and with a runoff scheduled for early December. What was that date, Paul? December 6th. December 6th, another runoff in Georgia, as we had back in 2020, the Democrats could actually pick up a seat, and I wouldn't call it a, a supermajority by any means, but they could get a 51 to 49 advantage. And in a country where the Democrats are trying to redo Senate rules and get rid of the filibuster, et cetera, et cetera, that race still looms large, even though the Democrats have control of the Senate. In the House, only 215 seats have been decided. The Republicans currently have 211 they need seven more. The Democrats just picked up Washington three with Trump back candidate Joe Kent, an army veteran, losing that race. That's a shame. I really liked him. He would have been a great addition to the House. He would have been. He lost. That's a pickup for the Democrats. So the Republicans still have a chance to take the House. In fact, uh, I would say there's a slight 
the betting odds may still have them as a slight advantage. What could end up happening is Democrats with a slight advantage in the Senate, and of course that's very critical for judgeships, et cetera. The Republicans could have a very slight advantage in the House, and of course we still have Corn Pop as uh, our commander-in-chief and, and the president. So, Paul, we'll get into what this means for the next couple of years and beyond later in the show, but I want to ask you first, I have my thoughts, but you probably have a little bit more data to back this up. What happened? Well, the first thing I do want to say is I feel like I'm in this deja vu from 2020, and it's just looking strange to me as to why is it that some of these states take forever to count votes, and then it always seems to favor the Democrats at the end. Like, it looked like we had Nevada won. It looked like Carrie Lake was going to win. It looked like... And then, you know, this thing goes on for days and days, and the Democrats just find votes. And I don't quite understand it. It just... Look, I'm not... There's. I don't think there's fraud, but I'm just saying that if you're the the average person looking at this, it just doesn't look very credible. Like, how is Florida able to count all their votes in five hours and these other states just look like third world banana republics and everything shifts the way the, the Democrats want it to go at the end? It just doesn't look good. That's all I'm saying. I imagine that the third world, I mean, Guatemala and the Democratic Re- Republic of the Congo, you know, are probably laughing at us that we cannot... And these aren't national vote counts. These are state vote counts in a small state like Arizona. I mean, it's relatively small compared to Pennsylvania, Florida, whatever. Florida, much bigger state, can have it all done that day. And and it's not like, Paul, that, you know, the votes that they're counting up are the votes that were cast that day, right? I mean, sometimes the early voting or the absentee voting is being counted at the last minute. That's unacceptable. If those votes came in before the actual November 6th, those should be counted. There should be a system wherein we have an answer by election night or maybe the next day. Here we are, full disclosure, that we're taping this on Sunday, right, to get it to you on the 14th. But the morning of the 14th, we're still counting. That's six days after the election. That I'm sorry, in 2022, you can't tell me that that is efficient by any means. No, and the goal is to make people think that it's credible, right? So people have faith in the results. And there's so many conspiracy theorists out there, people that have continue to think that 2020 was stolen. So we're not saying that any of that happened. And I don't think that it did. But the goal is to make everybody have faith in the elections. And the way to do that is give people an accurate count the night of the election and not have leads changing hands days later that just gives people fodder to say that there's some nefarious things going on. And, you know, it just encourages this. And unfortunately, with the way some of some of the races went this cycle, I don't think we're going to see changes going forward. So it's going to continue to be disaster and look like a third world country. And that's just what we're going to have to deal with. But that aside, I mean, let's just kind of talk about uh, what went wrong, right? I mean, it's, you know, normally I'm in a joking mood, but obviously not this week, because I think there were some things that on both sides, I think the Democrats did a lot right. I think the Republicans did quite a bit wrong in 
making this the way it was. I also think that we owe a mea culpa to our listeners. Um, we were on board with this red wave, red tsunami that everybody was talking about going over these polls. I think we did mention, and I, I specifically mentioned that I got very worried when I started to see Sean Hannity become this rah-rah cheerleader on Fox News a few days before the election where he's having this town hall with DeSantis and Rubio and everybody else. And he starts quoting polls from around the country and saying, you know, the latest Trafalgar poll has Carrie Lake up five points and everybody starts applauding, right? It's like, we're having this election victory party a few days before the election happens. And what do you know? It didn't turn out that way. So there's credibility issues on both sides of the aisle here that I think, I think we need to discuss. Absolutely. And, and so we, we did buy into that a little bit, but we were also saying it doesn't mean anything unless we go out and vote. And I was very concerned about it because similar to what they saw in 2016 on the Democratic side, where, I mean, nobody gave Donald Trump a chance and the pollsters were wrong. There, sometimes when people take polls, they don't want to reveal what their actual leanings are. And the, in 2016, it was, you are a Nazi if you like this guy. And people obviously Hillary was just such an awful candidate. They just kept it to themselves. I think in this case, and you, we're going to break it down, but I think abortion rights, whether you're a, you're a man that you want to vote for abortion rights, a young person, right? You, you don't want responsibility. You want to just continue to live, live in, in love as you see fit without having any accountability or responsibility, or you're a woman. And the only issue you're voting on at a time when families are struggling to feed themselves is abortion, you're going to keep that to yourself. That is true. Uh, the exit polls did show that I believe abortion was the number one issue for the Democrats that turned out to vote. And Democratic voter turnout was very high. What made this different, and I think we talked a little bit about this in our very first polling analysis uh, on the show back in September, was that Democrats look to be much more energized than usual for a midterm. And we were seeing at that point, there had been a, an election in Kansas where abortion was on the ballot. And we saw a huge uh, increase in voter registration among young people. And that bore itself out in that young people broke for the Dems by more than 30 points this cycle around, which I think was the 18 to 29 age cohort. And the turnout was very high in that group. So Republicans did turn out to vote. This was not a turnout issue by Republicans. Democrats were very, very enthusiastic this time with abortion. And Democrats did a lot of things right in this cycle that we, you know, I think we underestimated. Number one was the abortion piece that you talked about. Number two was also don't underestimate the power of giving people free stuff I think they continued to talk about on the campaign trail, reducing costs of this and that through giving money, tax credits, everything else. And I think that was a huge part. I think they continue to use envy as a very powerful emotion on the campaign trail as far as the class warfare argument and trying to demonize the wealthy, demonize corporations, despite the fact that corporations are the ones keeping the <laughs> economy and innovation going. So they were able to, to really take out some of those issues uh, that, the, that the Republicans had talked about. I also think that, and, and you'll talk about this, you know, let's, let's talk about Trump for a second, 
right? I mean, the, as you said, they, you know, you can talk about the candidates in a while, but the Democrats did succeed by A, pumping a lot of money uh, behind MAGA candidates in the primaries and getting them going and uh, also continuing to tie them to Trump and democracy on the ballot during the election. I mean, this was really, they were able to use propaganda by by not focusing on the important issues that are impacting people. And I think Democratic voters went for it. Well, I think you you nailed it right there. And, and it, Midnight Ride did swing and miss, maybe not as badly as some of the media outlets, but we did say that there is a disconnect between what issues the voters say that they care about and what the, what the Democrats are focusing on. And propaganda is a very apt word that you just used, Paul, because they continue to say democracy is on the ballot. Abortion is on the ballot and us getting rid of your college loans is also on the ballot. But they didn't talk very much about crime or immigration. They, they actually poked their finger in the eyes of voters in New York and Texas and others and said, oh, come on, it's not that big of a deal. I don't know why you care about that. And they still won. I'm curious what you and by the way, our tweet of the week is from actor James Woods, one of my favorites. He said, only one clear truth emerged from this election. This country is evenly divided, and each side thinks the other is literally insane. Very true for Mr. Woods there. Paul, I'm curious, uh, if the young, the youth vote, that's not something that typically turns out very high at high numbers. So they won that by 30 points, but was it significant numbers of young people decided to go out and vote? Yeah, I don't have the actual turnout number in front of me, but young turnout was higher than in previous years. So I think that was something that the polling did not pick up on at all. And I don't think that, I think that was probably the biggest error in polls this year was picking up young people because a lot of those were new registrants, new new people that had registered to vote that aren't going to get called by the pollsters. And, you know, they were not on the voter rolls previously. And I think, obviously, the power of social media in using abortion as an issue to get people fired up worked. So you did have that issue. And of course, you know, I say this, I don't want to sound like an old crotchety old fogey here, but I think that young people that are have less experience in life and, you know, haven't quite had to work for a living yet, don't quite, I think they're a little bit more vulnerable to propaganda and messages like what the Democrats were putting out than, say, older folks that have been around the block a few times already. And have studied history and totalitarian movements and propaganda. Yeah, and just general micro and macro economics, political science, everything. People that have studied those pieces, I think, you know, are more likely to vote in a way that you know, will be better for society as a whole, as opposed to young people that are voting by kind of what's in it for me, right? Well, you could say, and let's let's real quick talk about, again, we, we talk about this seemingly every week here on the Midnight Ride, but the Democratic Party and their base and the Republican Party and their, I think, expanding base, but it's it's maybe people who don't always vote. The Democrats now are clearly the party of not only the billionaires and the elites, but the college-educated, college-educated across demographics. But the Democrats have that cornered, whereas the Republicans are increasingly the party of the non-college-educated, non-college-educated whites, working-class minorities. That is expanding. 
So you can say the young people voted for their own interest, but it seems like the Biden administration has benefited some of these college-educated folks who know how to make the system work for them. And the people who always lose out in these types of situations are the people who are losing their factory jobs or losing their jobs or benefits. And so, I mean, Donald Trump spoke to those people in 2016. I think that Ron DeSantis and some of the other leaders in the Republican Party are getting, I mean, DeSantis, what he, we'll get to him in a minute, but what he did in Florida to attract voters of all stripes is pretty impressive. But, you know, the Democrats are the party of the college educated and everybody else that they can get through either giving away free stuff or false propaganda is enough to cobble together to win. But it doesn't help when you put forth. So I have three things that I think need to be fixed for conservatives if they want to go forward. The first, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is the quality of the candidates. Now, I'll talk about what the Republicans did here, and you, and you can talk about what the Democrats did, but there were candidates on the ballot this time for very important races, Senate races that need, were needed to shift the balance of power, and the Republicans put forth, if we're talking about, let's let use a boxing analogy, bums, tin can, just absolute jokes of candidates. I'm talking about Dr. Oz. I'm talking about Don Boldick. Herschel Walker, as much as I love the guy, he is not a strong candidate. He can still win in Georgia on December 6th. But some of these other folks, Carrie Lake and Tudor Dixon, they're dynamic. They are photogenic. They're charismatic. But they're not appealing to a broader group, especially Carrie Lake. I mean, she sometimes comes off as mean. I think she's going to lose. They're still tabulating the ballots there. But well, she's very divisive. She is. And that's the problem with a lot of these candidates is that they're just Blake Masters. A lot of these guys, they were so, were not catering to the independents. They turned off independents. And, you know, the polls were showing that independents were breaking for the Republicans. But at the end of the day, you know, the suburban women, the people that abandoned Trump in 2020, did not want to have anything to do with candidates that were trying to, you know, make themselves in Donald Trump's image. And they, they lost. I mean, that's why, that's why those candidates lost. And Trump did more harm than good. I mean, I think when Trump started going to all of these states to do rallies, I think he probably turned off a lot of the voters. Yeah, I mean, if you whip up your base, that's, that's good. But it seems like Donald Trump, his formula for victory is just whip up your base and, and you'll win. That's not good enough. The reason he won in 2016 is because America saw Hillary Clinton for what she was, which is a warmonger, a very dishonest and corrupt individual. That There were a lot of, there was a perfect storm in 2016. It didn't carry him in 2020. And some of these candidates, Lake in particular, is running on this thing that are, you know, the elections were stolen, et cetera, et cetera. Some of her policies, particularly with immigration and others, could resonate, but there was a there was a mean bent to it. You have to have, and Lake is so supremely talented in front of a camera. When the media come at her, much like DeSantis, she turns it around on them. And, you know, but she's no DeSantis. DeSantis can can take 60 minutes and say, actually, you edited that piece. It was out of context. And let me show you what you what the full interview. 
Whereas Lake will just be mean-spirited and all of her fans will say it was a mic drop. But like you said, you lose the independence. You have to strike a balance between a responsible, tough leader, maybe a culture warrior, but also somebody who's compassionate and somebody who maybe understands both sides. And you need that in a state like Arizona, but frankly, you need that everywhere. And so we've got to stop electing the, or trying to elect these low quality candidates. And, and as you said, Paul, I mean, the Democrats in our, in the conservative and Republican primaries, the Democrats took advantage of this and sort of gamed the system in their favor, right? Well, they did. They put a huge amount of money behind Dr. Oz and Carrie Lake uh, and Blake Masters and Don Bolduck in the primaries. They just went over the top. They backed. I mean, if you looked at the Maryland governor's race, even, you know, Maryland had Larry Hogan, who a lot of us call a rhino, but that's the best you're going to get in a state like Maryland. Massachusetts also had a Republican, Charlie Baker. Both of those governors chose not to run again. And of course, the Democrats worked really hard to get a MAGA candidate on the ballot to guarantee that uh, a Republican would not take their place. And that's exactly what happened. Larry Hogan or uh, Cox, who was uh, running you know, for governor of the Republican in Maryland, lost by 30 points, even though he was trying to replace a Republican incumbent. That is not the key to winning an election by having MAGA candidates on the ballot. The other key piece that I think the Republicans did wrong, and we were talking about as something they were doing right a few weeks ago, but I think it was only part of the story. So on inflation, crime, uh, some of those issues, they did talk quite a bit about how, you know, how bad inflation was, about how crime is impacting people, how the Democrats are failing on it. But I'm not, I did not see them offer solutions to it necessarily, right? So if you're going to offer solutions on inflation, you know, let's talk about the government spending. Let's talk about something having to do with interest rates. Let's, let's really get behind some concrete policy. Same thing with crime. Um, they talked about these liberal prosecutors, but if you remember in the 90s, they offered solutions like three strikes and you're out, uh, other pieces to ensure that criminals pay uh, the price that they need to pay. I didn't see that. I mean, was I just missing on that, uh, Connor? Because I, I mean, I was looking, I heard them talking a lot about the problems, but I didn't hear the solutions to it. Was I alone in that? No, you weren't. Supposedly, they put forth some policy statement or some sort of plan, but it didn't, it certainly didn't resonate. And, and, it, and it was a little late, I think. I mean, yeah. they sort of came out, they should have done that nine months before the election. No, they should have. I mean, some, th- some issues got worse as we got through the election, but even just simple one or two things, one on crime, one on even abortion rights or inflation, the economy, they could have put forth something. You know, voters do listen to these candidates and they could have said, they're right. That makes perfect sense. They really didn't put that forward. And that really, really hurt him. Another, I just want to say real quick, you mentioned Dr. Oz and he's not a Carrie Lake. He's sort of the opposite. He's kind of a guy that is in the past, he's been for gay marriage. He's been for, you know, a lot of things that appeal to the left, but he kissed the ring of Donald Trump and Trump endorsed him. This is a guy who's not even from Pennsylvania. And he lost to a guy who essentially was a brain-damaged candidate. How do you do that? He's literally Sloth from Goonies. Remember that movie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he looks like him. But how, how, do, how does Fetterman win that race? Well, Oz, number one, wasn't from the state. That's kind of huge. 
but also he had horrible ads, horrible messaging, and it was a perfect storm. Part of that perfect storm was our election system, which leads me to our next reason why I think that Republicans lost, which is election laws. Now, Democrats, they know this works for them, which is why they tried to pass, as soon as they got control of the House, Senate, and the White House, these federalization of elections. Fortunately, and this is why I think the Herschel Walker race is so important, Manchin and Cinema said, no, we're not, we're not going to go along with that. But if they get uh, 51 seats, who knows what could happen? So we need Herschel to win on December 6th. But these laws where you have all of this early voting, a month of early voting in some states, people who are fully ambulatory, young people who don't have any problem getting to the polls, and by young, I mean 60 or below, you know, people who are not in a wheelchair or in a nursing home, why should they be allowed to vote absentee? I mean, there are huge loopholes here, Paul. I mean, this is the elephant in the room. Not only does the counting of the votes a week later undermine the faith in the election system, at least from people on the right side of the aisle, but it's just, there's huge loopholes for potential fraud. We don't have that in Florida. I think that's because of the Bush-Gore election in, in 2000. But what I think we need to do is, you know, some of these state legislatures have Republican majorities. I think this, we need to get to an election system in some of these states where early voting is curtailed. Obviously, voter ID is a requirement. And absentee voting is for military, foreign service, and others. But maybe we figure out a system wherein the voting machines actually work. And what do you know? We can get 98% of these things counted on election night. That's how it works in Florida. So, I mean, as everybody knows, I'm a Florida resident. So I went to vote on election day. And what happens is you take your driver's license, right? You show them, you show them your ID. Then what you do is uh, it pulls up a picture of your license and your signature from your driver's license. Then what you do is you sign this little pad, right? It's like a touchpad, like an iPad. So you sign it and it electronically matches your signature to your driver's license signature and says whether it's a match or it's not a match. If it is a match, you can vote. If it's not a match, you can do it again. And then the person can examine it and, and make it work that way. So that ensures that it's you voting. You go into the voting booth, you fill out the different bubbles for all the candidates with a black pen or a number two pencil for who you want to vote for. You take that ballot, you put it into a scanner when you're done. You put it into that scanner, it confirms your votes, and it counts it right there. So it is in the system. You can see it. You can see that it scanned it. You can see that it's counted. You have the visual recognition that your vote was confirmed, and it's done. Right. And then if for a few hours, I think they do an audit, they double check everything. And then within five hours, everything is counted and it's done. I cannot figure out what is wrong with that. And also what they do is they give it's kind of a funny side note. I went in there with my kids and they, they have little kids ballots that the, uh, the kids can vote where you can choose between Abraham Lincoln and, and uh, George Washington. And then, and then the kids can drop their ballot in a box, which I think is a really great way to get them into the election. But but isn't that a great system, though, that Florida has? It is, because you walked out of there, Paul, going, it counted. Yes. Right? You, you know that your vote was just counted. But some of the people who are voting absentee, they don't really know that, do they? No, they don't. 
They have no idea. And because you, you know, it goes in the mail, you don't even know if it got there because of the, the U.S. mail service. Right. Uh, plus, you have no visual recognition about what happened. I mean, it, it could have been counted or someone could have tossed it in the garbage. I mean, you literally have no idea. It's, uh, the, as Alan Greenspan always said, trust but verify. I think the Florida voting system allows that, right? It allows you to verify that your vote was counted. And that is what is important to showing and giving everybody credibility. So let's just say that you live in Philadelphia. Maybe you play for the National League champion Philadelphia Phillies, and you you make a lot of money. And you, for whatever reason, you want to keep as much money as you earn, and you you believe in, uh, let's say, basic biology. So you decide to go in and cast your ballot absentee for a Republican. Or so you, your ballot gets there. Maybe you put it in a drop box or something like that. Maybe you put it in a drop box because you you don't want to be seen, you know, autograph seekers or whatever. And there are election workers in Philadelphia who maybe don't want to see a Republican win. No, and I, I know for a fact that, you know, members of the teachers unions and others sign up as to work the polls. So, and to to sit there and count. So that's not a, uh, it's, it's not far-fetched. So the system that you describe, you have certitude. You feel good walking out of there because you see it in front of you that it was counted. But some of these other means... I mean, how do we know? In California, they now send out absentee ballots to everybody unsolicited, or at least they did in 2020, with the party affiliation on the envelope. So whether you are receiving it in the mailbox or you're, you're sending it, there's two or three different places where an, un, you know, an unethical or somebody who is a, a partisan hack could just throw it in the garbage. And that includes, the, that goes from the postal carrier all the way down. The thing is, there's points of failure and it adds uncertainty. There's points, there's points of failure that are just, that are not anything nefarious. It's just the in, inefficiency of the mail system or whatever. But there's also a system wherein if you're saying that Donald Trump is a Nazi or, you know, whatever, then when people buy into this, this very harsh and apocalyptic propaganda that you're putting out, you know, some of the, the simpletons may say, well, to save democracy, to save women's wombs or whatever the case may be, maybe they, they go off the deep end and they affect the election. Now, listen, this leads us. So I think, yes, Florida system is what we need, right? Going forward, something like it, where we eliminate all of these points of failure and everybody trusts the system. Now, the Democrats would probably use the nuclear option to stop that because they rely so heavily on early voting. One more thing about early voting, though. Well, you can do early voting in Florida also, but it's the same exact process. I mean, when you vote early in Florida, you it is no different. I mean, you still fill it out. You still put it through the scanner. You know your vote was counted. They do have vote by mail in Florida, but you have to have a compelling reason, and then you also have to put a, uh, every two years, you have to renew the request. And then also, you know, you put your signature on the outside, but it doesn't have your voter registration on there. So there is a vote by mail system. I'm not a fan of vote by mail at all, unless there's a necessary reason. But I think it is a safer system than in some of these other states. And the early voting, as we saw in Georgia, as they changed their laws to expand early voting access in, in, in a lot of places, uh, more hours, more 
weekends or whatever, but they did require voter ID and some other things that they cleaned up. That was called the new Jim Crow or whatever. But we just need to get back to a system like Florida or Georgia where people's faith is restored. The Democrats are going to seize on some you know, familiar tropes, some things from Reconstruction or, or the 1950s or whatever, and say, this is what the Republicans are trying to do. They're trying to do to you what we did to you back in, in the 20th century. No, that's not what's happening. But what we, what, where this manifests itself now, Paul, is that you have candidates like Donald Trump, like Carrie Lake and others, who part of their, the whole, their whole platform going forward is election fraud. And that is not good. That, that is painting them as lunatics or extremists. And so I think the message needs to be, hey, does this make sense to you that in the United States of America, a week later, we're still counting them and propose these common sense reforms that make sense to everybody? Voter ID is, is resoundingly approved by all demographics. And I think some of the things that you're talking about will be as well. Yeah, and you want confidence in the system. It's not that they're saying there's fraud, but perception is everything. The way to maintain a really strong democracy is so that everybody has confidence in the system. And, you know, when you have, when you have late counts and heavily democratic areas continuing to count late, and leads changing from Republican to Democrat days later based on this, it does not breed confidence in the system. So, so that has to get fixed. But, you know, there's a couple pieces also that I want to look at, which, you know, specifically Florida and Texas. And why did those do so well, right? I mean, for example, if you look at Florida, what is it that, that had DeSantis win by 20 points, Rubio win by 17 points, when we were looking at, you know, since 2002, no Florida governor's race has been decided by more than 1%. And in fact, for the first time in 150 years, the Republicans have a supermajority in the, the House and Senate in Florida, as well as in the governor's mansion. And what was that? I mean, I think the voting, obviously a good voting system, I think is part of that. But, but if you look at the difference between Ron DeSantis and some of these other candidates around the country, in that he never backed down from his principles. He was never talked about election fraud. He stayed focused on what worked for Florida. He had a really good response to the hurricanes. He put his money where his mouth is on everything. And I think people in Florida said, hey, this guy's getting things done. He's taking on all of the important issues in the state, whether it was property insurance, auto insurance, woke education in the school system, uh, response to natural disasters, taxes. COVID. COVID, of course, COVID. Yeah, good point. How did I forget that? COVID was probably the biggest one where somebody like Trump was sort of flailing back and forth and listening to Fauci and everything in 2021 and, and not providing clear direction. DeSantis stuck to his guns and he got rewarded, you know? And I think people don't like these politicians that go back and forth and don't provide clear direction. I think the average Florida voter said, we're in good hands with Ron DeSantis. And I think that was a huge piece of it. Now, a lot of people are also saying that the, it was buoyed by Republicans from around the country moving to Florida to help sort of get votes going there as well. So during COVID, I mean, Florida was getting 1,000 uh, residents a day and you saw Republican voter registration just completely swell 
to overtake Democrats for the first time in history. So I do think that was a part of it, but obviously not a 20% victory. So there is a lot to be learned from Florida. Yeah, there is. You look at the the swings in some of the demographics to the Republican side, I think COVID had a lot to do with it, that people's jobs were not lost on the scale of some of these other states. And that's why there was a massive migration to Florida, which will continue, by the way. But yeah, DeSantis, and I heard uh, Christopher Ruffo of the Manhattan Incident Institute describe him as a muscular culture warrior. You know, in, in Virginia, in Florida, and, you know, in a lot of these national school board races or, or, or local school board races across the country, people are afraid of what's happening with their children. And DeSantis stuck up for the kids in a big way. And I think that's, he gives a big blueprint for Republicans moving forward, which is don't be afraid to take on big tech. Don't be afraid to take on corporations. Fight for children. Always err on the side of the worker and fight COVID restrictions. And he and Marco Rubio did speak to Latinos. Now, Latinos in Florida are a lot different from- Can you say that again? How did you say that? Latinos. Latinos. Latinos, okay. yeah. Okay, they, I'm, I'm going to learn something every day. <laughs> they're a lot different demographically than maybe they are in Arizona, California, because there are a lot of people who are escaping socialism. Cubans, Venezuelans, you know, those folks- you know, everybody likes having a job. Everybody likes, or nobody likes having their kids groomed. So I think it's a formula that works. And, you know, one thing, you mentioned Texas as well. Yeah, because Texas did. The reason I brought that up is because Texas was one of the, also the few places that outperformed the polling. I mean, Abbott beat uh, Robert Francis O'Rourke by more than the polls were projecting. So we did see positive impact there as well, similar to Florida, which was also not evident in the rest of the country. One thing that that both of these governors had in common, one common denominator is both of them sent illegal immigrants up north to some of the sanctuary cities and states and made it an issue for some of those folks. And I think people in those places, especially Texas, appreciated that because Texas has been hammered by the Biden administration. And, you know, they, they said, hey, Governor Abbott is fighting for us. He's making this an issue. You know, he's, he's trying to ease the burden on us and have other people, you know, see what we have to see every day and what we have to deal with. One other thing I want to talk about before we go to what happens next is the role of big tech. I think you can do telephone polls or Internet polls all you want. But one thing that is very hard to measure, and it's, it's very insidious, I think, is the role of big tech. The power of Google, Facebook, some of these other companies. I mean, if people go on Google and do a search about, let's say, the Dobbs decision or the college loan forgiveness bribe or, or any of these other things, what, or even they just type in the name of a candidate. What do you think is going to come up? Something that's straight down the middle or something that's favorable to Republicans or favorable to Democrats? Well, I would say favorable dem favorable to Democrats would be my guess based on based on the history, right? Yeah. So it's like the whole thing. I mean, I just did a, I just put in abortion as we're speaking into Google. Yeah, I was going to say, let's test it right now. Yeah, so I got top stories. So you get Google News first and I get... New York Times, while abortion rights shrink in U.S., 
this small country expanded access, MSNBC, <laughs> I know, MSNBC, midterm election results prove Republican abortion uh, bans or fails. Wall Street Journal, abortion politics loom over U.S. Catholic bishops vote. So trying to show that, abort, you know, Catholics are going pro-abortion. Then the Vogue is the other one. What, what's it like to have a medication abortion? Five people share their stories. And then, uh, of course, the, the top search uh, in Google uh, for uh, a website is PlannedParenthood.org. So you've got, uh, and then the world, the world Health Organization, then Amnesty International. So then abortion, the Center for Reproductive Rights. So every single uh, and then abortion on the ballot, 2022 election results. So the top 10 searches are all pro-abortion, are pro-abortion results. So how interesting is that? How Okay, let me try. I'm, I'm going to type in Herschel Walker right here, okay? Yeah. And the top news item that comes up, because I clicked on news, it says, video of Herschel Walker saying, we're the greatest country in the U.S. goes viral. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, I see that too. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And and you know, so you have first of all, it's very hard. It is not a level playing field for Republicans or libertarians or others because in addition to the fourth estate, which is almost 90% in the bank for Democrats, then you have the added layer of big tech. And we saw this in 2020 with the New York Post story on, on Hunter Biden and, and that corruption that was, was outlined in there. Big tech is, we talk about Twitter, which, you know, obviously now it's, it's things are still sorting out with Elon Musk and how that's going to shake out. And by the way, the Midnight Ride does have its check mark now. We yes. are paying our $8 a month for uh, free speech. At Midnight Ride Pod, you can see we've got the check mark. I hope you're all following us. If you're not, please follow us. And, and our DMs are open. But yeah, I mean, so that's still sorting itself out. But Google is immensely powerful. Meta is still, you know, Facebook is huge. And as we've outlined on the Midnight Ride, these folks are colluding with the Biden administration. I mean, they were meeting on a weekly or biweekly basis to combat misinformation. What kind of misinformation do you think they're combating? Election misinformation, perhaps? Vaccines? All these sorts of things influence voters' minds. And so I think in addition to awful candidates, election laws, which have huge loopholes, but also big tech. Th those are three things that need to get fixed or, and three reasons why I think it was a red mirage instead of a red wave. Let's talk about what happens now. Yeah, I know. Now, we, we have about 15 minutes left. So let's talk about what hap happens now. And we can probably even expand on that next week because so much of this is going to, this is going to be a long-term thing. I think, too, that we, we've got to also, there are so many issues that during election season, we didn't really talk about because we wanted to talk about elections. We may touch on this, and, and certainly we will talk about the Georgia runoffs and, and sort of national politics, but there are so many issues, too, that are going to affect all of this. But, Paul, we are already hearing speculation that next week somebody is going to announce that they're running for president, and we can make some guesses as to who that is. But what is this election, and I'm going to call it a loss, is it is it Chris Christie announcing? Is that what everybody's <laughs> thinking about? Or Larry Cox? I, I I don't know. I think is Liz Cheney. Is she running? Because <laughs> you never know, right? She might be. 
What, what does this election mean for the next two years? What does it mean for the Biden administration? What does it mean for 2024? Look, I have a few things that I want to bring up. And uh, some of them are very sort of structural issues that I, I think. I mean, number one is, based on these results, we're not going to get the changes in the dysfunctional elections that we were talking about. Because Arizona is going to have a Republican, a Democratic governor. Nevada, we could see with the pickup there. Uh, Pennsylvania, obviously, remaining blue. So, you know, don't expect any fixes to... Uh, to some of these swing state elections by 2024. That's going to be one big piece. So in order to win in 2024, then, you have to really, really be good. You have to have great candidates. You have to have more of the same from the Biden administration, just abject failure. And you have to have basically, uh, you know, great issues to run on as well. Yeah, you have to, because there's going to be major structural issues working against the GOP in 2024 mm -hmm. yet again. So that's going to be a big issue. I think this loss of the Senate is going to mean that Biden is going to be able to continue to appoint activist liberal judges, you know, over the next two years. And that's going to be a major issue for the GOP in that because a lot of, you know, we've been able to, to fight Biden by... Uh, having judges that adhere to the Constitution. And that's what the Midnight Ride is all about. But if these liberal judges continue to get appointed that like to have these long, real sort of interpretations of the Constitution that kind of don't really make sense, I think that's going to cause a problem. And what's going to make it worse, too, in the Senate is that Joe Manchin is no longer going to be the swing vote now that it's likely or it's possibly likely that the Democrats could have 51 seats if uh, if Herschel Walker loses. And I also think given that Arizona went blue again, I think Kirsten Cinema is going to have an incentive to not quite be as as much of a roadblock for the Democrats as she was, because I think she can have a little bit more confidence that Arizona is blue. So that I mean, I think that's I think those are going to that's going to be a big change. The other thing is, I think, you know, if the GOP wins the House, they're going to have a, ma a majority of maybe five seats or so. And that's going to allow the fringe to control the narrative for the GOP because, um, you know, A, is Kevin McCarthy even going to become speaker? Are the Republicans even going to coalesce around somebody? Are they going to infight? And does Nancy Pelosi become speaker again, just because, even with a Republican majority because of the sheer fact that the GOP can't get it together? You're going to have, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world essentially controlling the entire GOP by holding out and gaining all this leverage. So that's going to be an issue. So, you know, going forward on the, the structural side of getting things done, it does not bode well. No, it does not. I think both parties are their own worst enemy here. You're so right about, you know, the Republican and, and the makeup of the House. Because, you know, for the next two years, I think we're going to see, you know, as Joe Biden laughingly says, hey, if you're going to investigate my son, best of luck to you sort of thing. Uh, you're going to have if, and it's still a, a pretty significant if, if the Republicans get control of the House, you're going to see investigation after investigation. And people might say, is this what the Republicans do? I mean, that's what the Democrats do. And that's sort of what they expect. But you're not going to win those independents, I don't think, by doing this. Well, and also how, I mean, the other question is with a with a majority controlled by the fringe, how can the GOP get bills passed in the House 
that address inflation and address crime and invest and in you know education when and immigration when you're going to have five or six members that are going to essentially control everything in the GOP. You know, there's literally no room for error. And some of these folks, you know, on the very moderate side of the GOP, maybe in places like California or New York and uh, in swing districts versus the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. I mean, how are you going to get any agreement to pass any bills that are going to actually impact people and show the American people that the GOP cares and is trying to, to propose solutions? No, that's true. And we have coming up, you know, the usual debt ceiling things that, you know, national debt discussions. I mean, the government could shut down. I would I would expect it to, quite frankly, coming up here in the in the next couple of months. You know, Joe Biden, he has been a joke. He has been a, the worst president of our lifetimes, but he it's sort of accidental excellence on his part because through no action of his own, the Dobbs decision and you know, some of these other outside factors have helped him have a term that was way better than, than Bill Clinton. And so I think, though, in 2024, this could actually be a good thing for Republicans because Joe Biden did not learn his lesson. In fact, he's spiking the football, and so is Chuck Schumer and everybody else. And so I, I think they're going to continue to kind of go down the path that they are. And we'll have to see what this means in 2024. And so now we come to the elephant in the room. We've got a few minutes left. Ron DeSantis is the only good thing that really happened for the Republicans on Tuesday night and, and throughout the week. His dominance in a formerly bluish or purplish state of Florida and his brand of politics, is it the way forward? Donald Trump certainly feels threatened by it because he immediately put out something that sounded like it was written by a six-year-old saying that, you know, Ron DeSantis is his stupid nickname for him and, and basically just trying to say, if you run against me, I will try to take you down. I don't know, though, Paul, and you tell me if you agree, if he can have the same success against DeSantis as he did against another Florida, uh, Florida governor, Jeb Bush, or any of the other folks, can Donald Trump still insult his way to the top of the GOP ladder? Well, I think that uh, Donald Trump, I think at this point, is less concerned, I think, about, you know, I think he wants to be president and he wants to run again, but I also think he is very scared of a Republican Party moving on without him. And he wants to be the difference maker. I think the, the Republicans, I think, some combination of Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin and those two personalities and the way they get things done, I think is how the Republican Party should move forward. I think when we talk about this upcoming special election in Georgia with uh, Herschel Walker and Warnock, um, I think Walker now may have a better chance to win now that uh, the Republicans have, or the Democrats have taken control of the Senate for the sole purpose that I think Democratic turnout could be a little bit lower with the Senate not being on the line. I think they're gonna have to talk about certain things to get people out. Also, I think the fact that the Libertarian candidate in Georgia is not gonna be on the ballot, hopefully that will get some additional votes for Walker. I think he had about 2%. Yeah, he had 2%. And then, you know, when you talk about DeSantis and you talk about Youngkin, the way forward for this December 6th election is Brian Kemp, DeSantis, and Glenn Youngkin 
need to be out and on the trail for Herschel Walker between now and December 6th. And Donald Trump needs to go nowhere near Georgia and completely stay away from it. He cannot, he ruined it in 2020. He cannot ruin it again. He needs to stay away. I was just going to say, the reason why Raphael Warnock is a U.S. senator is Donald Trump. His, you know, desperation after losing the presidency, going down there. And telling people not to vote. Telling people not to vote. Stay home. You know, this election was stolen. Stay. Let's show them by not voting. And then, oh, you know, the, the stimulus that they're talking about giving you is, is not enough. I'll give you more. It's just... It was embarrassing. It was shameful. It cost the Republicans at least one, probably two Senate seats. And but Herschel's his guy. Remember, I mean, he he played for the New Jersey Generals. You know, Herschel's a, a Trump candidate. But I think the way to win those independents, the way to win that state is for Herschel to stay on his current message and and be flanked by the three individuals or the, the two. Yeah, the three individuals that you just mentioned. I think that would be huge for the Republicans to keep that 50-50 because the Democrats can do more if, as you say, that Manchin and Cinema feel a little bit less principled, perhaps. And remember, Manchin is up in 2024. So he obviously, in West Virginia, we know which way West Virginia leans. So he is still going to be a swing vote. I think Cinema not so much. So we need to have, you know, we've got to get that 50-50 so that, you know, Manchin is still a swing vote. Because if it's 51-49 and Manchin is a swing vote, but cinema goes the other way, uh, the Democrats can still do whatever they want to do. Well, I, I hope you're wrong about that, Paul. I like her. I, I think she did vote on principle. She, she certainly took a lot of face shots over that and probably feels bitter about it. I don't think she's necessarily going to embrace them with open arms. But we're out of time. We've got to wrap the show. We want to, again, remind everybody to continue to give us five-star ratings, tell friends. Um, we're growing every week and it's thanks to you. We hope you like the show. If you have something that you'd like us to talk about or you just have a comment, send us an email to the Midnight Ride Podcast at gmail.com. Next week, we will discuss this Trump-DeSantis battle for the soul of the party. We may also discuss some court cases or other issues where government is infringing upon your freedoms. Paul, last thought for the show. Well, I... Uh did we just finish the first segment? Is that what this is today? I don't. <laughs> no breaks today. It was just. I know. I didn't even take a glass of water. I didn't even have a glass of water. <laughs> you go have a glass of water. Everybody try to stay warm. Uh, people in Florida, hopefully uh, you got through uh, Nicole damage free. Uh, if not, you've got a great governor that, that continues to, to take care of those sorts of issues. For Paul Runyon, I'm Connor Coughlin. Thank you for listening to the Midnight Ride podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you.